I'd like to go ahead and get started, so if I could ask you to please stand, and we'll, uh, we'll begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Please, please have a seat. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I mentioned to our speaker that uh, many people of ethnic roots tend to show up a little bit late. So we're, uh, I think, maybe about 10 after, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we have a a few more people coming in, uh, maybe with traffic and and family stuff. But um, how many of you were here last week? For the first talk, okay, so maybe 50% of you. So last week we had Dr. Dean Mashoski, who is a pediatrician over at Metropolitan uh, Pediatrics, and he's known by many people in this uh, community simply because he is the pediatrician of uh, some of the children that we have. And his talk was on building up resiliency in our children and in ourselves. And uh, as part of uh, Health Alliance in, in the Portland area, he's one of 100 pediatricians um, who really focuses on the health of our children, not just physical, but, but also the emotional health and the relationships and within the families and his, his area of, of expertise is uh, building up resiliency. So that, that um, PowerPoint that he gave, we have to change some of the pictures out of it because they were copywritten. So once we do that, I'm going to save it as a PDF and we're going to post it on the website. That way you can go and just uh, print it out if you want to have that. We're also planning to uh, post his uh, um, the audio of the talk, and uh, I also have permission uh, from uh, Dr. Hosley to also uh, post his, and we'll probably leave those audios up for just a period of time. We're not going to leave them on the website indefinitely, maybe a month or something like that, but uh, we'll try to get the word out when we're able to, to do that. I also want to just make mention of the fact that today and tomorrow, is it tomorrow too, Agape? Yes. Yeah. Okay, there you are. Um, the bookstore has its annual 20% off sale. So... What's that? Tomorrow? Yes. Okay, before and after Vespers tomorrow. So take advantage of that. Also, I just wanted to make a plug. Uh, a friend of mine who is a professor up at Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology, he is the professor of pastoral theology. Uh, his name is Dr. Philip Mamalikis, and uh, he's very well, um, well-known, well-traveled. Uh, he speaks a lot. Uh, he's written quite a bit. But he just came out with a new book called Parenting Toward the Kingdom, Orthodox Christian Principles of Child Rearing. And it's literally hot off the press. And it has been read um, by one person that I often ask to read and do reviews. We're going to have a book review done. It'll be posted on our Family Wellness Ministry website, which is, a, which is the Metropolis of San Francisco ministry. Uh, hopefully we'll have that um, up in the next couple of weeks or so. But what I have not read it yet, but the two people who have read it that I trust dearly in terms of their opinion and their perspective uh, say it's uh, phenomenal. So hopefully it'll be a a hot seller uh, and and I encourage you all to to pick up a copy. So 
let me just take a minute to introduce our speaker. Uh, Dr. Ryan Hosley is a licensed psychologist who is certified in the treatment of sexual addiction, multiple addictions, and trauma. Dr. Hosley serves clients in partnership with Living Wholehearted at his Tualatin location and independently in Happy Valley. He has been serving clients for eight years as a licensed professional and many years before while receiving his training and participating in his calling. The majority of his caseload, as you can imagine, are individuals and couples working through the complex and deeply painful issues involved in overcoming addictive behavior. When not serving his clients, he is likely pursuing a passionate life with his wife of 16 years, trying to survive a game of cutthroat basketball with his teen boys, chasing steelhead with any one of his seven children that can fit in the boat, or enjoying the sublimity of a cup of coffee on a blissful fall day while walking along the river. This is a topic that's very heavy. It's not quite as heavy as building up resiliency, but I think we're progressively getting heavier uh, in, in, in the content and, and what we're talking about. As you know, in three weeks, on Thursday, December 1st, we will have a representative from CARES Northwest come in to speak to us about child abuse. Um, this is something that they do uh, in the school systems in terms of giving talks to teachers and so forth, but CARES Northwest is really a stellar program in working with parents whose children's ha children have been abused. Um, it's a multidiscipline uh, program with medical doctors, social workers, psychologists, uh, you name it. Uh, and so we're going to be really fortunate, I think, to have someone come from there as well. But tonight we're going to hear about uh, addiction in general, and I know Dr. Hosley has some uh, things to show us and to share with us on this uh, tough topic, but something that's very important. So I hope all of you would give him his, uh, your attention, and Dr. Hosley, thank you for joining us. Appreciate that intro. It was almost as exciting as when I got home tonight, right? And walk in, hey, Dad, and uh, applause like that. So not really. They were stuffing their faces with enchiladas. So I was lucky to get one or two. Um, with seven kids, you're lucky to get some food. So, um, But how are you guys doing? You just doing okay? Um, I, you know, I sometimes I apologize to my clients because I'm the psychologist that talks too much, right? A lot of times people think of a psychologist and they think of tell me how you feel and then 45 minutes later, um, you know, we're done. And, uh, but that's not really how I, how I roll, so to speak. I'm very active uh, because I think a lot of people need to understand what's happening when they're dealing with addiction. And a lot of people don't have any idea what it is. You kind of know it when you see it, but you're not sure when you see it if that makes any sense, right? And so tonight, I just want to address common questions, common concerns, right? The, the, uh, the, maybe the umbrella, the heading of the night is, hey, this is about how do you notice addiction in your children? But frankly, you can't talk about addiction in your children when just talk about, talking about addiction in general, right? So I want to I address the, the topic of addiction. Also, I'm going to you know, unabashedly confess that um, you know, I, I, I do have a Christian worldview, and, and being that we're in a, a church setting tonight, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just be very bold and say that I get most of my anthropology, my understanding of the human condition from, from the Word of God, right? I, I do believe that we were made in His image and that uh, He said some things about us and that uh, our character and nature is revealed in the Word. Um, however, I also have been you know, studying psychology for a number of years and, and there's, there's a lens that is very relevant from a psychological perspective that I also want to bring tonight and try and mesh both 
both of those worlds. Not always the easiest task, right? So I just want to I want to have you guys kind of roll with me a little bit tonight. Um, you know, so so before we before we start. I just want to ask the question, if I can, right, what, what, what is addiction? When you guys think of addiction, what do you guys think of? Yeah? I need to do uh, something that overrides uh, what you should be doing. So, for instance, you have to watch, say, a certain episode before you Okay. So, yes, Aaron, so I need to do something that overrides every other priority, essentially. Okay. That's good. Back in the back. Yell it out. Huh? Drugs. Okay. I'm thinking electronics nowadays. Electronics. Oh, yeah. Hey, I was actually, I forgot. Father Timothy asked me to ask everyone to put their cell phones in a box for the next two hours. (laughs) Do you guys like to volunteer for that? (laughs) Anybody feel a little pitter-patter? Like, oh. Also, not being able to say no. Not being able to say no? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There's different types. There's you know psychological, emotional addiction, and yep. physical addiction. So the drugs speaks to the physical addiction. Yep. And then the two, you know, interface like cigarette smoking. Mm-hmm. And the, <clears throat> having the... Great, great. Yeah, that's the, what he's highlighting is that there's a psychological dependence and a physiological dependence. Like if you've ever known somebody uh, quitting smoking for about two and a half to three weeks, they're just the most irritable person in the world. <laughs> Nicotine is a very powerful physiological withdrawal, but after about two to three weeks, uh, you're over the physiological part, and now it's just the fact that you used to take a break every hour to go breathe deeply outside and get fresh air, <laughs> and now you have to sit in your cube, <laughs> right? So, so then you start eating carrot sticks and stuff like that. So, right? Well, anything else? I mean, it's good. Yeah. Um, escape. Escape. Great, great answer. Yeah. Yeah. Compulsion. Okay. Okay, pleasure seeking. Yep, the reward centers. Anybody want to say the D word? Dopamine. (laughs) Right. What do you guys think are maybe the biggest misnomers about addiction? The biggest misunderstandings? And I'm trying to get a a feel of of the audience tonight. Yeah. Moral failing. Moral failure. Great answer. Okay. Denial. Okay. Ah, yeah. So the misnomer that addiction is just one section of society or one demographic. Okay. Yeah. Ah, that's a great one right there. It can't happen to me. That would never happen to me. Yeah. I can stop at any time, by the way. Willpower. Yeah, the, the willpower trap. Yep. Okay. So you guys are pretty educated. This is this is good. Like, I mean, what I what I hear so far is um, you guys are hitting some of the common thoughts of addiction, and and you're also hitting some of the misconceptions pretty well, right? Which is good. It gives me a feel for where you guys are at, you know. And and so, if I can get this to work, that would be incredible. Oh. Sweet. That was a little dopamine reward right there. <laughs> Feeling it. Feeling the buzz. Okay. So that was one of the slide I was supposed to have up a second ago. But 
So I just want to start with this. Is that I want to define addiction in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, but first and foremost, uh, addiction is a relationship problem. Okay? What do I mean by that? What happens when we have addiction is that we've determined that substances or behaviors are the best way to manage life. Right? We've determined that substances or behaviors are the best way to manage life. I joke about Anita. Right? You, you don't want to invite Anita into your life. And if anyone's named Anita, I apologize right now. Right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> don't, don't tell me because I know. You know but, right? You know, well, who's Anita? Well, uh, I need a drink. I need to I need eat four more cookies so that I can feel that satiated, awesome feeling. Right? I need a this. I need a that. You guys with me? So, so first of all, addiction is inviting Anita into your life. Right? We, we, we need, we need to, to, to watch ESPN to unwind. I, I need to do this. I need to do that. You guys with me on this? So, and, and the funny thing is, is we all say this, right? I, I need, it's 4 o'clock. I just brought the kids home from school. I need a mocha. Right? That's my wife. Okay, so. Right? <laughs> right? So, um, you know, the, so the, the reality, though, is that we were designed to live the ups and downs of life in the context of relationship, right? So to pursue life-giving activities, life-giving behaviors, right? And, and not pursuing the kind of the, the brain buzzing or somebody said the word escaping type substances or behaviors or activities, okay? So you guys with me on this? Why is addiction a relationship problem? It's because you were, you, you were created to manage your life through relationships, right? So that's the first thing, right? So that's, that's Anita, right? I need to escape, I need to avoid, or I need to numb, right? So those are the neural pathways that addiction operates on. Escape, avoid, numb, right? Okay, and, and so that's, that's one framework, right? So addiction is a relationship problem. So I want to talk a little bit more about what, what addiction looks like by looking at, at um, people and examples of people in relationships, right? So, you know, having seven kids is pretty amazing because I've had a ton of experiences, right, with, well, I'm, I'm kind of like a, a child psychologist dream, right, because they can hang out with my family and study every age group all at the same time. It's pretty awesome, right? On down to the toddler, that's, that if you break their graham cracker in half, they're fired up because now they have more, right? Which is pretty amazing. Okay. So, but think about kids at the toddler phase of life, right? Um, their head's like Charlie Brown. It's way too big for their body, right? And you know at some point they're going down, right? Because they're just not designed very well at that, at that age for momentum, right? Okay. So, so think about this toddler. This toddler's excited, right? They're, 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 they're starting to move. They're starting to get free. They're, they're basically telling the world, I can do it. You know, get out of my way, right? They're excited about life, right? So they're, they're, they're really what they are is they're uninhibited, right? But toddlers are also very connected. Toddlers, toddlers know who mommy is, agreed? Right? Anybody ever work in nursery? <laughs> right? Don't, don't drop me off. Don't let me go. Right? They're very connected. Right? They can hear mommy, hear daddy in a room. They can pick them out. Right? They can find them. Right? They're very, very connected. Okay? So, especially if they get an owie. Right? They get in, somebody has toddlers, right? They get an alley, what are they going to do? First of all, man, they're looking for mom, they're looking for dad, right? And they, they want to kiss, they want to hug, they want to tell you all about it, right? So think about, though, if a toddler's running down the sidewalk, you know, they're just trucking along, right? Oh, i got to get my slide, here we go, like that, 
right? He's cruising, man. He's fired up. Woo! Right? Well, well, his head's way too big, as you can tell. Okay? And he, and he, and he stubs his toe, and he goes down. And that, and that head is so big, he can't stop it. So not only does he skin his knees, he skins his hands, but he does the forehead bonk on the concrete. You guys seen that, right? Where they just go, boom! Right? And, and, and so, you know, it, addiction is like, right? Okay, that picture. Addiction is like that two-year-old, that toddler, lifting up his head and going, God, I need a drink. (laughs) You guys with me on that? That's weird. That's weird. What does that toddler, what would in a normal circumstance that toddler do? Mom, Dad, right? We scoop them up, we do the, 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 the face behind the ear thing so they can do the silent scream and it doesn't hurt ears, right? You know, they, then they get it over with and what do they do? They, pretty soon they're wiggling out, you know, maybe you've got to put some peroxide and a band-aid and then you send them on their way, right? And they're, they're good. What have they done under normal circumstances? They self-regulated, Right? They breathed, they cried, you hugged, you wiped, you know, it's going to be okay. And you spoke back into their life. And so what do they do? They, they bounce off your lap and they, they go for a little jog. They run away. Okay? So that, that's the difference between, in, in that relationship context, right, a, a two-year-old. But, but not far from the two-year-old, right, is the teen, Okay? Navigating through high school, the drama of peer relationships, the stress of good, get, get good grades or you'll ruin your life, the pressure of athletics, social media that constantly beckons, attention between, constantly beckons attention between classes, in the car with parents, and for sure at lunchtime becomes a great way to avoid the stress of engaging in relationships, right? Kids just, right? Just doing that. Okay. Studying or working out constantly has become a way to feel adequate and placate their fears of failure. Afternoon or evening at times when studying has become more of an escape than productive. They toggle before their research for an essay to pornographic websites and chat rooms. Discovering masturbation is how they end their day. They drift off to sleep in isolation and shame. They awaken in the kitchen about to do it all again. They smile and say to their family, they're doing just fine. That's what addiction looks like in a team. And I'm, and I'm going to put some context around this, but I just want to get you guys thinking by helping you guys picture some things, right? He's doing fine, right? Doing good. Okay? How about the man who has works nights, or, sorry, the man who has a wife and works nights, and after a long day of frustration at work, the only way to unwind is to fall asleep to watch ESPN. Right? And while simultaneously toggling through his multiple social media feeds on his phone, transitioning into playing a video game for an hour or so, then retiring to the bedroom alone to fall asleep by watching miscellaneous YouTube videos that invariably lead to some type of sexually acting out content and often to masturbation. You feel stuck and ashamed. It's 4 p.m. <laughs> I had a client share with me. He was telling me about his, his story of dealing with uh, pornography addiction, dealing with uh, workaholism. And he said to me, um, you know, and I should probably tell you about my, my coffee hug. I said, like, your coffee hug? What's that? He goes, yeah, about 4 o'clock every day I make sure I go down and I get my, my coffee hug. And he gets his, his frappe lappuccino or whatever, right? And, and it gets him through the end of that day. 
right? The wife of a successful pro- professional and mother to adult children, she's lived in fear nearly every day of her life. Fear of the business working to produce enough income, fear of her children making good decisions, fear of the Zika virus, or was it swine flu? Nobody can remember these days. Her family laughs that mom worries enough for everyone. She tries to laugh it off as well, but she knows that she doesn't know how to not worry. Her motto might be, a crisis a day keeps bad feelings away. The constant stress and intensity of life has become her companion. To cope, she works out daily, often one or two hours. She fears gaining weight and becoming unattractive to her husband. And the routine and exhaustion of the workout routine is the only way to calm herself. Nearly every evening, with only one four-ounce glass of wine, to be sure it doesn't become a problem, she takes the edge off her day and this is up enough to approach her husband sexually or respond to his advances. She only feels beautiful in his embrace and fears that if she can't give it to him, he will find it somewhere else. To have sexual intercourse nearly every day, it has become mindless. She feels alone. It's not necessarily what I think most people think about when they think about addiction. But I'm trying to open up your brain to that it's, uh, addiction is, is much, much more than alcohol. Addiction is much, much more than pornography problems. Addiction is much, much more than, than all the substances that get the press. Okay? Than oxycodone or whatever. You guys with me on this? Okay? I'm just trying to create a box in your brain. Okay? So, addiction is a big warm hug. So let's go back to the coffee hug. Okay. Um, I would say he's, he's, a, he's a very influential um, leader in the field of addiction, and his name's Dr. Gabor Mate. He wrote a book um, called From the Realm of Hung- Hungry Ghosts, talking about how addiction drives our lives. And if you take addiction to the extreme that we see potentially on TV, or if you guys have ever worked in shelters, or you've been down under Burnside, or this or that, right? Um, you're, you're looking at empty people, right? And so Dr. Gabor Mate... Um, was working up in Vancouver, B.C., which has um, a, a, a many, many addiction problems. And he was talking with a 23-year-old female who was homeless on the streets. And he, he said, so what's with heroin? Tell me about heroin. Just trying to gain information, right, make conversation. And as he told the story, he said she, she said something that, that stuck in his brain forever. And she said to him, she said, Dr. Mate, the first time I tried heroin, it felt like a big, warm hug. It felt like a big, warm hug. What is a hug? I want you guys to actually think about that for a minute. What is a hug? All right, don't answer me, but just, what is a hug? Okay. But I always tell you, go back to the two-year-old. The, the two-year-old that skins their knee needs a hug, not a shot of whiskey. Agreed? <laughs> right? They, they need a hug. Right? The whiskey provides an escape. The hug provides relief. And if you're writing anything down, write that down. The whiskey provides an escape. The hug provides relief. Right? Addiction provides an escape. It makes you feel good. Life makes you feel better. There's a huge difference, okay? And it's, in order to understand that, we need to, to understand that it's all about your brain. Your brain is at the heart of relationship. Okay? Again, your brain is at the heart of relationship. Okay? 
The troubled individual, just like that two-year-old, we may, we may be considering if they reach for alcohol or any other behavior, what they're doing is they're introducing a substance to their brain. Uh, alcohol is a depressant. It inhibits activity in the brain, which serves to deaden our awareness of pain. Right? It also serves to stimulate dopamine activity in the brain, which makes us feel better. Right? That's why alcohol works so good, because it kind of does two things. Okay? A hug, on the other hand, right, offers an opportunity for the child to share, be it crying or pointing to their injury or talking about what happened and receiving comfort. And again, at any age, it's about offering an opportunity to, to talk, to point to our injury, right, and to receive comfort. Being held produces oxytocin. I'm talking about our brains right now. Being held produces oxytocin in the brain. Any, any women ever heard of that something-tocin word before? <laughs> right, pitocin? Like, ah, cold sweats. Okay, right? So, so pitocin is a derivative of oxytocin, okay? And, and, and oxytocin is uh, God's wonder drug. Right? Um, I want to I talk a little bit about how we're created, how we're wired. Check this out. Do you guys understand? It's, it's kind of funny. People say there's, there's two great days in your life, the day you're born and the day you re- realize why. I'm just going to totally argue with that. The day you're born is not a great day. <laughs> I mean, come on, think about it. You're in climate, cool, condition, 98.6, right? Sound insulated, right? You got this cool voice you've known all your life that just soothes you constantly all day long, right? Then all of a sudden, your world starts closing in around you. Right? Repeatedly squeezing you. Right? You get flipped upside down and your head gets put through a very, very small cavity. Okay? And, and then you come out into bright lights, cold air, loud noises, and no wonder you cry. It's a bad day, right? Your world just got totally just sloshed, man. Okay? So what happens to the baby, though, under ideal circumstances? I know it's not always ideal circumstances, but under ideal circumstances, the baby is scooped up, skin-to-skin contact, soothing voice, breastfeeding, right? And I understand it's colostrum, but it's got a lot of good stuff in it, too, before the milk comes in. Right? And if you guys have ever experienced this, which I have seven times, right? I'm, I'm a pro at watching my wife give birth. <laughs> right? I'm not taking any credit for anything. She did. She were here. She'd be like, what'd you do? Right? No, I cheered her on. I'm a cheerleader. I put my pom-poms on. I was good. Okay? So, but what happens is, is that baby suckles and they fall asleep. Right? Generally, they fall asleep. Right? So you can look at a bad day and what you need right there in that picture. And the moment that that breastfeeding starts and the touch starts, they get, they get dopamine, they get serotonin, they get oxytocin. And again, if you want to look up what some of these things do to your brain, it's incredible. A lot of us have heard of these, these neurochemicals. But oxytocin is the best. It's the bestest. Okay? And oxytocin washes your brain. Right? And it takes away irritation, right? It promotes feelings of well-being, right? It promotes healing and bonding. So guess who else is getting oxytocin while she's breastfeeding? Mom. And her brain is getting washed in oxytocin. That's why she forgot birth. <laughs> it really is. It's an amazing process, right? And, and what you have there is a perfect picture of what it's like to receive care. Well, that, that scenario, that need never changes. It never changes. The, the, to the, the most senior person in this room, you have the same need of a brand newborn baby for care, for nurturing. 
for connection, right? And so if we take, take that scenario and again insert instead of a hug, a substance or behavior, we're getting off track and we're moving towards an addictive process, right? It's a matter of how often you repeat and the consequences of repetition. You guys with me on this? Yes. I mean, feel free to like stop me and go, you lost me, right? This is kind of like algebra. If I lose you in the first day, we're done, okay? I'm going to keep you guys with me, okay? And I got a little bit off my notes here, but, but let, me, let me go back to it, okay? Is that being held produces oxytocin in the brain, which produces feelings of bonding and overall well-being. The feeling of acceptance and care releases serotonin and dopamine as well in moderate amounts. The cortisol released by the stress is metabolized and the desire for dopamine-related behavior is reduced. Relationship has done its work. Restored, reinvigorated, the child, the teen, the adult can resume their running. A hug is about relationship and acceptance. Addiction hijacks the neurochemistry of relationship. Relationship restores us and empowers us to live a full life. Addiction just takes away the pain. You guys with me? Tracking? Okay. All right. I was looking for a slide of a fork in the road. I found that one. So, okay. <laughs> it's a little comic relief. It's a little heavy. Okay. So, how, how did we get here? Um, addiction is a slippery sucker. Nobody plans on being addicted. They don't. Nobody wakes up. They're 12, 14, 16. I think I'll become an addict. That's a great idea. It was so good. I was so glad Uncle Rory was an addict. It was just amazing for our family. I think I'll be an addict. <laughs> Nobody chooses this. What we know about addiction is that there's generally a couple of pathways that lead to it. There's a gradual path that includes a number of subtle to more prominent behaviors. And then there's the more intense and sudden onset. I'll start with the sudden onset. There's a number of incredibly powerful substances available to us. Um, you guys have probably heard of, of the growth and people addicted to painkillers, right? They're super good at what they do, and they're very addictive, okay? But let's take, uh, say, uh, uh, obviously a street drug, but methamphetamine. Do you guys understand that, that addiction rates in our communities go up based upon the purity of the substance? So when, when they're getting good meth, good clean meth out of Mexico, our addiction rates go through the roof. Because it's been said that if you have, if, if, I, got, if I were to give each of you in this room just one hit of, of clean meth, right? First of all, you're going to feel like you have 1,000 plus orgasms at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's like putting a, a jet engine on a Honda Civic, okay? Your brain wasn't designed to do that, and it's going to do some damage, frankly. But because of that, half of you, they say statistically, would become addicted to meth, right? Because it's so powerful, and meth is the, is the most powerful, pure stimulant you can get out there, right? Okay? So, if, again, so how do people get addicted? If I gave this room meth, half of you guys would statistically become addicted to it, which would, means you would need to go through recovery and, and, tr and some sort of treatment to get over it, right? Um, another example is, is um, you know, again, um, people that have dental work or a back injury or something like that, and they start taking these opiates, and they get a refill, and they get another refill, and before you know it, they're, they're addicted to opiates. Uh, of really, and, and you can say, of no fault of their own, but it's just how their brain works. 
This stuff is powerful, okay? So those drugs are incredibly effective at managing the pain, but they're also very addictive. Um, You know, these cases of introducing a strong substance to the body creates what we call, right, a physiological addiction. Physiological. Your brain becomes dependent. It just needs it. Right? And, and to, to maybe dispel a myth, there is a very real physiological addiction to, all, to many of these behaviors. Um, I, I think an example would be um, alcohol. If you took, took uh, say there's 100 of you in here, and we put 100, 100 alcoholics on lockdown, you don't get your alcohol, and then we put 100 uh, heroin addicts, and you can't have your heroin, and you're on like opposite sides of the hallway in a, in a hospital type situation or something like that. First of all, if you were listening, you would think that somebody was ripping out every single toenail of the heroin addicts. Just anguish, pain, gut-wrenching, horrible, horrible. It literally would sound like they were being tortured. On the alcoholic side, it would be quiet. But after three days, 50% of the alcoholics would be dead, right? And maybe one or two of the heroin addicts would be dead because of the physiological dependence. And so that's why at drug treatment facilities and things like that, sometimes they give a chronic alcoholic alcohol because they're, they're, they're withdrawing so fast that if they don't manage the withdrawal, they can literally die. So just to drive that point home, there is a very strong physiological dependence to some of these things. Okay? A more gradual onset of addiction, to get back to that, looks like the story is shared prior. A pattern of behavior emerges wherein the means of dealing with life is to choose substances or behaviors over relationships. Additionally, these choices create consequences. So because of that, addiction is a thinking problem. When we think of Anita rather than healthy relationships, we have a thinking problem. Right? When I need a this or I need a that, Right? We have a thinking problem. We're, we're making the wrong decision about what we really need to feel better. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's a question. Sheesh, Brian. Thank you. This is awesome. Uh, are we all addicted? Yes. Unless you're not. Yes. Unless you're not. What do I mean by that? is that I think that we all are faced with choices every day about how we're going to manage our, our, our emotion, right? Are we going to manage our emotion through uh, relationships or are we going to manage our emotion uh, through cookies, right? I'm just totally guilty of that one. I, I like my cookies, especially after 10 p.m. It's amazing, right? You guys with me? Ah, come, on, come on, right? I'm not, you guys are like, oh, that cookie guy, great. So, right? But what happens with addiction is that it becomes a pattern of behavior that creates a pathological relationship. Pathological. Classic, you guys remember Dr. Phil a few years ago, right? How's that working for you? Right? It's, it's pathological. It's not working, okay? So it's a pathological relationship with mood-altering substances or behaviors. That's the definition of addiction. I'll give it again. Addiction is a pathological relationship with mood-altering substances or behaviors. Okay? So, substances or behaviors. That's really important to catch. Okay, translation. Addiction reflects constant versus occasional choices. Addiction also creates consequences. Right? 
the, the, there's an awareness, right, that an addicted individual negatively impacts their community and suffers new, numerous personal consequences, right? That's why, that's why we're attentive to the addictive process and we, and we seek to heal it, okay? So there's your definition. It's kind of highlighting for you, right? So, just to review really quick, okay? Addiction is, is choosing any, any number of substances or behaviors over relationship. And I'll tell you guys, there's, there's three, I'm going off my notes just real quick, I want to hit this. So there's three key relationships in your life. The first key relationship is your relationship with you. Right? There's your relationship with you. Um, most addicts, if you really get to know them long enough and they're still in their addiction and you get them to really build maybe a little bit of trust, they will tell you they feel worthless. And then if anybody really knew them very well, that they're afraid they'll be rejected. Right? I realize I'm generalizing, but that's generally the case underneath the surface. Yes? That was something I was going to ask you on the previous. Yeah. Uh, uh, from the community? From or self? Okay. Um, it's a great question. So she's asking, how does acceptance fit in to the Anitas? Right? Um, I'm going to loop back to that, and if I don't hit it, call on me again. Right? But I think, first of all, it's just to accept that um, as people, um, we're in a world full of choices, and they're not all good. Right? We're not in the garden anymore, agreed? Right? And, and so we have opportunities every day to choose things, and afterwards go, mm, I don't think that was the best choice for me. So I would say to that, that's, that's acceptance and go, okay, that's probably not the best choice. If I can continue to do that over a period of time, I'm going to experience some negative consequences and probably need to change, right? I would say acceptance of other people is to, to view people as um, in pain. Have you guys ever seen a squirrel on the road? Like, you know what I'm saying? Not the one that's flat. We've all seen that one. Especially around here. It's like, man, it's a war zone out there if you're a squirrel. Okay? But, but we've all seen maybe a squirrel on the road, and we're coming, and that squirrel goes... You're like, just go left! Right? But you go, left, right, left, right, left, right. Right? Squish. It's just reality. Right? So you can say that squirrel is, well, that's the dumbest animal in the world. Uh, but that's a, not a true statement. That squirrel is scared. Scared. We make really dumb decisions when we're scared. They look dumb, but it's it's the it's not our thinking brain that's making them. So a lot of times these behaviors are we're doing our best to get by. Especially if you look at the genesis of addiction, it generally for most people it's going to happen in their in their early teens. Right? That's where we see the, the start of some of these behaviors. And so a lot of times they're just trying to take care of themselves in a world that's honestly kind of scary sometimes. Okay? So it's, it's, it's again, it's pathological. It's a relationship problem. What I was talking about is relationship with self. I believe that we are also designed for a spiritual relationship. Right? And if there's, if there's funk in that relationship, so to speak, if there's some dysfunction there, right, then, then we're not going to feel as, as grounded as we need to. And then there's relationships with our communities, with our people. People, our family, our spouse, where we're, we need to feel safe and connected in those relationships. Okay, and so the the addiction is a thinking problem because we're not choosing these these people anymore. Right, we're going the other direction. Okay, so how did we get here? Okay, it starts with shame, fear, and isolation. Okay, the chosen behaviors provide temporary physical or emotional relief for our condition. Right. 
And here's the problem. They simultaneously do produce additional shame, fear, and isolation. Right? And a number of consequences that go along with them. Right? I want to I wanna I I kind of show what this looks like when I talk about a multitude of behaviors. Okay? This slide is usually a mind blower for a lot of people. Can I see if you see I'll get out of the way? Okay. So when we start talking about addictions, I've never met an alcoholic. I've never met a cocaine addict. I've never met a food addict, but I've met a lot of addicts. Right? What's that mean? It means that they're usually using it's kinda like remember the pinwheels that we used to have? It's kinda like put a little pinwheel and it's called Tobacco. Workaholic. Codependent. Always engaged in drama. You guys with me? Um, it, it always comes in, in a spectrum of behaviors. Right? And one of the things from a treatment perspective is that whenever I see relapse, I go, what'd they miss? What they miss, and it's and it's the individual that's no longer, say, using pornography, but they still work seventy to eighty hours a week consistently to the point of exhaustion nearly every week, right? And they're still emotionally disengaged, so they're, they they have a work addiction, right? Because again, if it's about escape, avoid, numb, pick your path. There's a lot of ways to do it, right? So it's really, really important to understand that, again, there's, there's numerous ways to escape, avoid, numb, to get that rush, to get whatever it is that we're looking for, right? There's, especially in our culture, there's so many things available to us because we just like to feel better, right? I'm really tempted to get on a soapbox right now about I want to be happy. Um, happy is the weather, right? When the, when the weather comes, it's great. We can enjoy it, but if it goes, then it's raining. And a lot of people pursue happy, and they go, I want to be happy, I want to feel happy, right? But we weren't created for constantly happy, right? We were created, again, for relationships and meaning and purpose, okay? So because addiction involves an array of behaviors and substances, right, there's no such thing as an addict to one thing. It's been said you can identify a tree by its fruit. Broken relationships, lack of trust in oneself and others, a low self-image, fears, job loss, being emotionally unavailable to others, etc., that's the fruit of the tree of addiction. It's isolation and shame. Why is it isolation and shame? I want to show you what the addictive cycle looks like. Can you guys all see this over here? Can you see the whiteboard okay? I can move it a little bit. Um, can you see it? Right. Okay. Check this out. Oh. Shame is in the middle. Okay, so we have our shame condition. I don't know anybody that does anything from an addictive perspective that after they're done, they go, I feel so good about myself right now. This is amazing. Right? They feel, they feel horrible. Right? So say, say it's uh, um, the alcohol addiction. Right? Say they're spinning out here. Right? Well, they go here and they go, ah, it's horrible. So they go back out here and they feel better. Then they go back here and they're like, ah, it's horrible. So they go back here and they feel better. Right? Well, well they got to go to work at some point and they can't do it drunk. Right? So they, so they, they bounce here, that doesn't feel good, so then they go, I'm going to be the, I'm going to get the promotion, I'm going to be super productive. And they focus on work, and again, escape, avoid, not the work, but now they're depleted and they're dishonoring some of their relationships. So they go back to shame. Right? And then they go look at some porn. Right? And then they go back to shame. You guys with me? Okay. 
that how, how we know, when I say we know a tree by its fruit is that these be, this pursuit of some of these behaviors and some of these choices um, at their core is going to be shame. And when there's shame at the core, we know there's a problem because we weren't created for shame. Okay? I'm going to have some fun with you guys right now. You guys ready? Okay. Um, this is where I go to uh, how I believe we were created. Uh, we, were, we were created, look at Adam and Eve, we were created in a garden, right? It was good. You know what? It was almost about 98.6, they say, right? Everything was provided for. We had no need. And um, God looked at us and he said, you're very good. That was every, all of other creation he said is good. And then when he created man, he said, very good, right? And so that was spoken over us, okay? Well, then, then we have this sin problem that happened. Okay? And, and you guys know the story, right? Eve took the fruit, she handed it to Adam, and immediately their eyes were open. And what did they do immediately after their eyes were open? They hid amongst the trees, right? And they felt silly. And they felt so silly that they thought it was actually a good idea to cover themselves with a fig leaf. You guys ever seen a fig leaf? Woefully inadequate. Woefully and itchy. Is a bad choice of coverings. Okay? So they're amongst the trees, they're woefully inadequately covered, and 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 just stand there. It's like, what's the plan, Adam? I don't know. Just hold still. Maybe no one will notice. Right? Well, God's walking around, and it's not like he doesn't know where they are, but he's he goes, Where are you? And um, they come out and they're standing there, and God's like, What's up? And they, that's my version. What's up? And they said, uh, well, we were naked and afraid, so we hid. And he says, this is so amazing. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Nakedness is, is, is uh, shame. So what does shame look like practically? I'm worthless. I'm not as good as somebody else. I'm unlovable. I'm not worthy of relationship. And so he looked at them and, and he said, Who told you that? Who told you you're not good? I said you're very good. Right, kind of had a southern accent there. Uh, I said you're very good. Yeah, and they go, No, we're not. And he just goes, Man, who told you that? Right? And then the story unfolds and, and God, challenging their shame condition, wants to call them back to what they were created for which was to rule and reign, right? You remember he said, hey, we're going to fill the earth and subdue it. And Adam, by the way, I want you to name every animal. Talk about a God-sized task. He needed a hand with that one, okay? Right? And, and, and so what he did, though, symbolically, is that he kills an animal and provides a covering for them, right? And in providing a covering for them, they felt good enough, Right? And they came out of the bushes. And now they got these cool, they're like, man, we got a leopard print, man. What'd you get? Right? You know? <laughs> right? I got the gazelle. Right? Okay. So they're, they're, they're covered and they're doing good. Right? And they're restored to relationship. And they're restored to their self-image. Right? And obviously now there's an, a long-term problem. Right? And so God kicks them out of the, out of the garden. Right? And, and he creates some new boundaries in their life. Right? Lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in that condition. But I want you guys to see is that the process of addiction is to try to cover your life with fig leaves. It's, it's choosing fig leaves. Right? 
it, it results in the need for more fig leaves. It results in, it's totally unsatisfying, right? So, man, I thought this was about addiction in our children. It is. Your kids are learning to make choices right now. They're learning to make choices. And they were wired for hugs. They were wired for hugs. Right? They were wired for connection. They were wired for relationship. Right? And they need a great relationship with themselves. They need a great relationship with you. They need a great relationship with God. Right? So that they can get through the challenges that they're facing day to day. Right? And God provided that picture for us so that you guys can see the picture. And let me, let me flip it and let me go to uh, the, the New Testament version of that picture. Right? Um, talk about a, a guy that wanted to find his own way. Right? The prodigal son. Right? He had everything. He had it all. Life was great. But something was missing. Dissatisfied in some way. Say, so, hey, Dad, I kind of wish you were dead. I, AKA, I wish you were, I, I want your inheritance now, which means, Dad, I wish you were dead. Right? It's a little father child relationship problem. Right? And, and he takes everything and he goes and he, and, he, and he pursues what? Worldly pleasure. Right? And at the end of that line, at the end of that, when the money was gone, when the girls were gone, when the, the, the ego trip was gone, when it was all gone, he found himself where most addicts find themselves when they decide they want to change, which is they're in pig slop. Right? And, and, and all addicts have the same line. Dear Dad, I've been bad. I'm going to come back, but at least make me like one of your slaves. They ask for what they think they're worth. Right? And he comes back. And he's just saying, Dear Dad, I've been bad. Make, you know what I'm saying? He's rehearsing it all the whole way home. Dear Dad, I've been bad. Make me as one of your slaves. Because <laughs> that's what he said. He goes, Man, my, dad, my, my father's servants are doing way better than I'm doing. I'm feeding pigs and I'm stealing their food. This is terrible. Right? So he walks his way back. And, and, and we see the picture of the father in a hurry, running. Right? And the father throws his arm around his son. And what's he put on him? A robe. Right? A ring. Right? And we understand the significance and the symbolism of robes and rings. Right? It's a covering. You're renewed. You're restored. The ring is sonship. It's identity. It's authority. Everything is made new. Right? And he's like, I'm so glad you're back. And, and he's kind of like trying to say, dear, dear dad, dad, I've been bad. You're kind of supposed to treat me like I'm bad. But he doesn't receive that reception, does he? He receives a warm reception. He receives healing. And he's restored fully, right, back to the place where he was supposed to be. So recovery, right? So, right, the Sunday school class is over. I'm not going to use a flannel graph. Although I wish they would still use those. Those were so cool. You guys know a flannel graph? Somebody's old enough to read a flannel graph? Okay. Or that flannel, and you would put cutouts of Joseph and Mary on the flannel, and it would stick. It was really cool. It was way before PowerPoint. Okay. So... I just dated myself, but anyway, right, is that um, recovery is about relationship, right? I'm going to fly through some slides. Let me see where I'm at, see how far I missed. Yeah, there's your fig leaf for you. That's good, right? I mean, really? It's horrible. Okay. I'm going fast because I want to get to... 
what is it? What does addiction look like again? Loss of control, compulsive behavior, efforts to stop repeatedly, loss of time, preoccupation, thinking about it, planning it, continuation despite consequences, escalation, the need for more tolerance builds physiologically. Right? You have losses in life and you experience withdrawal. These are just kind of hallmarks. And and again, the mind blower. And just being real with you guys, I work with um, predominantly sex addicts. Right? That's the main addictive behavior. Um, and it kind of trips some of them out when I tell them you're going to experience withdrawal. I was talking with a client on the phone the other day, and, and um, he was telling me about he started his addictive process when he was 12 with masturbation. Right? Masturbation and isolation. Right? It, it, it was a way to take the edge off the day, and, and he got into a routine of doing that every day, and that was how he fell asleep. Right? And um, he, he, um, his story is one where he basically said, I can't handle the tension between this behavior and between my faith. And he walked, totally walked away from the faith for about 10 years. And in that doing so, he pursued um, a lot of illicit behaviors, which you would kind of think of if the guy went off the deep end into that world. I don't, I don't need to go down the path. But I was talking to him, and he's in his, and he's in his early 50s, and we're chatting, and, and I, I said, so, so you've done some recovery work. Like, you've tried to get over this. Um, what's the longest stretch of sobriety you've had from that behavior? And he goes, well, I did about 50 days. And I said, okay. I said, I heard earlier, though, that part of your recovery plan was for your wife to make sure she was with you intimately twice a week. Um, have you ever not had a kind of sexual response, like, for more than three days? He said, no, never since age 12. And I said, dude, you, you've never been sober. You've never been sober, right? Why, why am I saying this? Because an alcoholic isn't sober if they stop drinking whiskey and they only drink beer, right? They're still tapping into the same behaviors. You guys with me? It's your brain, right? And so if we're still feeding some sort of behavior to our brain, right, we're not in recovery, we're not getting healthy. But I, I use that example as to go, this guy never made it through a wave of withdrawal, physiologically from sex and it can be the same kind of withdrawal if you're very active in that behavior as you would experience with cocaine right so we just need to acknowledge right this question of, of what does addiction look like and then I want to go back to that you know, are we all addicted again yes unless you aren't right are there consequences do our kids have consequences are they isolating more Right? Are they are they dropping the grades in their classes because they can't stop gaming? Can they put that phone down? Right? Are they starting to sneak away and party? Are they sneaking food? Um, are they struggling with anorexia? A lot of people don't know this, but anorexia is the opposite of addictive behavior. Um, but it's on the same spectrum. It's a sense of preoccupation and control. And a lot of anorexics also have an acting out behavior on the flip side of it. Right, they're food anorexic, but maybe they're compulsive uh, in another area of their life. Right, so again, we miss stuff all the time. Right, but I, I and I want to highlight. Okay, so what's recovery look like? 
Well, I'm a big 12-stepper. Why am I a 12-stepper? 12-steps, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever. Whatever Anonymous, there's a lot of anonymous groups, right? There's, there's uh, Overeaters Anonymous, there's uh, Marijuana, there's Codependency, um, there's uh, Narcotics Anonymous. There's, there's a, as many anonymous groups as we need for people that have challenges with different behaviors, right? And I, and I, and I bring this slide up just to highlight again kind of my point that, that actually the answer is, is the Gospel, Right? Because a lot of you guys may be going, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do with my kids or my grandkids? Or how do I address this problem? And you got to hook them up. you got to hook them up to God. Right? Step one, we admit we're powerless over alcohol that our lives have become unmanageable. Does that sound anything at all to you guys? A little bit like repentance? <laughs> right? It sounds a lot like repentance. Right? I admit my life is unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It's gone, hey man, God, God's out there and He cares about me. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. This is, this is the gospel. And most people don't know it. They think it's AA, but it's actually, it's actually all, all biblical principles. Do they work for AA people when they choose um, God to be their VW bug? Yeah. They really do. Because they're, they're surrendering, they're believing in something greater than themselves, right? Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of, of ourselves. They dealt with their, their history. They dealt with their story, right? And, and I could go on and on in this stuff. But honestly, guys, this is like an eight-hour talk, right? Which I, I won't do that to you guys tonight, right? But I just want to help plant some seeds here, right, that the, that the answer is in that. Yes? Um, how do you treat people who are atheists? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, I I hook them up to a great relationship with their self, and great relationships in their community, and then I ask them what they can believe in that's maybe greater than themselves. Right, and for some of them, it's it's the AA itself. It's there's a group of men or a group of women here that I trust more than I trust myself. That's their criteria. Right, and is that a, a negative thing for me? Nope. I think it's awesome because I want to help them get healthy. I really do. But great question. Yeah, a lot of people ask that. Um, but, you know, going through the 12-step process, that you, you, your sponsor will help you deal with who's God. I think it's, I think it's a, a fundamentally human question that we need to, to, to deal with, right? So, does that make sense? Man, there's so much I want to talk to you guys about. Let me look here. I'm actually pretty quick to being done with this portion of my talk, so I'm going to just keep going. So what do we do about it? We need to get real, right? We need to we need to uh, chuck the fig leaves, right, and press into God. Guys, can I just be? I'm just be super transparent. I have to do this every day. You know what I'm saying? Like, life's hard. You know, I don't know about you guys. I was trying to get to Camas, Washington. What's tonight, Friday? Wednesday night. Anybody else try to drive through Portland Wednesday night? I was mildly frustrated. Right? And, and I definitely couldn't get my voodoo donut. And so, literally, I'm with my wife, and I just, uh, my prayer was, God, I, I give you my frustration, give me something else. And I know he's the Prince of Peace. 
So I was like, I give you peace. I'm like, great. It's kind of funny. We were, and my attitude totally changed, and, and I started heading back south on I-5 because I had to go all the way to get the 205 to get to Camas. I'm like, she's like, why are you exiting? I'm like, if I'm going to be late, I'm not going to be hungry. Pull over and grab some sushi. <laughs> and we were an extra 25 minutes late, and people were new and didn't have any idea, and it was awesome. But I'm like, I'm not going to be late and hungry, right? So I grabbed some food. But, but we all have to do that every day. And, 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 and you might not have noticed on the pinwheel that I put up there, but anger is addictive. Anger gives you a rush of adrenaline. Your whole world moves around you. You feel satisfied now, and you feel better, and you totally avoided what it is that somebody wanted to talk to you about. And a lot of addicts struggle with anger. We haven't rooted it out till we've rooted it out. Okay? You have to change your thinking association and you need to create new habits. Your success will be found in your daily routines. Right? I talk to, to, to people that want to get healthy. And, and um, you know, I talk to my children about this. Right? Because we're all prone, right? I, I go, hey, what are your routines like? What are your routines? And, and I talk to them about making sure they put in their life the healthy, the routines that they want to have happen. And, and, and those may be relational. They may be um, self-care, right? Because when we do stuff that matches our priorities, catch this, this is really key. When we do stuff that matches our priorities, right, when we say that's important to me and then we follow through and do it, our self-image goes up and we feel better about ourselves. When we don't do it, our self-image goes down if we pay attention, or we're just going to denial and pretend that what we set out as a goal didn't matter anyway. Right? So it's about, it's about creating successful routines, right? But mostly what it's about is, is this. That's what it's about. When was the last time you got one of those? powerful picture in that. Who's happier? <laughs> who's, who's more satisfied? And you can't tell. Right? So I asked the question, right, what does a hug look like for you? What does a hug look like for your children? I think a hug is about acceptance. A hug is, I, I was reading this John Maxwell book called Great Leaders Ask Great Questions, and he made a statement, I'll never forget in that book, and he said, he said, the act of listening to another human being is as close to the loving them as any other act. Listening. Why do people call 900 numbers and talk to somebody they don't even know about stuff they don't really want to talk about it? Somebody's listening. Right? And so I think as parents and as peers, one of the biggest things we can do in our life is flip our phone over silent it and say how you doing and then listen and refuse the temptation to offer a suggestion about how to feel better because actually by listening you're helping them feel better right how many of you guys love that when you're like hey let me just tell you about my day you start talking about your day and they, they got for you a thousand and one things you could have done different about your day and you're just like never mind <laughs> I'm going to talk to the cat <laughs> Right? Cat pretends to listen. Okay. That, we need to figure out what our hugs are in our life. Right? And so, um, I just want to share real quick. You know, so my, my dissertation um, was on fathering. I, I researched uh, father closeness. 
Um, we've all heard about involved fathering, right? And, and dads that are involved. And we've also heard about moms that are involved. And that's been studied really extensively. But um, we wanted to look at, at intimacy. We wanted to look at a connection. And so um, I researched this, this topic of closeness. And fortunately, I had access to some data, so I didn't have to go out and do a thousand surveys, which was amazing. Right? But the question we asked was, what are the impacts of, of adult men having a close relationship with their fathers when they were young? And we measured that by asking these questions. Uh, it was easy to talk to my dad. My dad knew how I felt. Right? I was a piece around my dad. Things like that. Right? Which measured the degree of intimacy, right? Think about that, right? That picture, right? Easy to talk if she could talk, right? And what we found with father closeness is that it was associated with almost countless positive outcomes in life. Um, but the, the three I measured was this. I thought they were pretty important. Uh, life satisfaction, marital satisfaction, and what we called non-marital sexual behaviors. Right? And it was anything sexually pursuing anything outside of the confines of marriage. And what we found was a, there was a significant statistical association between uh, adult men who had a close relationship with their father and their degree of life satisfaction, marriage satisfaction, and non-engagement and non-marital sexual behaviors. And it wasn't really a surprise. Um, I just needed some data to show what I thought was true. Right? And so why do I share that with you guys? It's because I think relationship is the key. And I think that we need to understand as people, and I'm not going to say our culture is any different than any other culture, but um, the, the family unit is under attack. Right? And if, if it's not distraction in the family unit, it'll be something else in the family unit. It'll be busyness. If it's not busyness, it will be um, anger. If it's not anger, it will be something else. And I think that, that preserving that family unit is a place where we can talk and listen to one, one another is probably one of the greatest ways to alleviate the risk of addictive behavior in our kids. And I'm not trying to guilt trip any of you guys. Believe me, I've got seven kids, and, and sometimes when they all want to talk to me at the same time, I'm just like, oh, talk to your mom because she can multitask. <laughs> I can't. Right? No, but it's, it's and, and even then, I don't always have to listen to everything they're saying. I just need to listen and tell my daughters they're beautiful and that they're lovely and I care about them and tell my sons that I think they can kick butt. Right? You know what I'm saying? Because that's what men need to hear. So do you guys have any questions? There's one other part of this talk tonight I want to talk about, but I just want to hit that real quick. Yeah. One of the things that you talked about was how relationships or hugs bring people closer together. How do you handle someone who repeatedly wants to push you away. How do you handle somebody who repeatedly wants to push you away? You're getting to the root of addictive behavior, or even pre-addictive, or whatever, of relationships. Um, we all have trust issues. And we've all experienced what I would just call relational trauma, relational fractures. Right? Um, let's look at what happened with Eve before she ate the fruit. The serpent came to her and said, Did God really say you weren't supposed to eat of that? Right? And so I think actually the first sin, I mean, I'm not a theologian, but 
I think the first sin missing the mark was that Eve doubted God's word. And God said she was very good. And so there you have, I think, the root of um, the human condition. It's, it's not just whoever you're talking about or you're asking this question about. It's all of us. Is that we all doubt that people are good. Right? And then sometimes we have stuff that happens to us that confirms that doubt. Right? How many of you guys, don't raise your hand, but how many of you guys have been hurt by a person in your life? How many of you said never again? Right? Do you want to know the answer to this? That's so cool how you open the meeting. Father in heaven, right? Forgive. Yeah, forgive. I'm just saying it. Forgive. Forgive, 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 forgive. If I could sum it up in one word, it would be forgive. Forgive who? Anybody you need to. Uh, forgive them. Forgive on the behalf of them. If I, if I could be like the Easter Bunny, I would carry around forgiveness eggs all the time. I would dress up 365 like a rabbit if I could do that for people. Right? Actually, we can. You guys know we can offer forgiveness to people. Then we model forgiveness. I'm going to tell you a really cool story. I'm a four-year-old, and she's the coolest thing ever. Um, I, tell, I tell all my kids, I go, you're the coolest girl in the world named Karis. Right? So I don't create competition between my kids. Right? But she's four, and she was at karate practice with my wife the other day, and she was being a, a little turkey. And my wife says, Karis, did somebody hurt your heart? And she goes, yeah. She's like, what happened? She's like, I'm mad at Kenton, her older sister. Right? So she goes, I'm really mad at Kenton. And she's like, my, my wife says, what did she do? And she goes in to tell her these things. And for four, she's, she's like my wife. She's like smart and articulate. Right? I'm struggling to be here with you guys tonight. But, right? And my wife says, Karis, do you want to forgive Kenton? She said, yeah. And so Camille said, hey, just repeat after me. And she said, Kenton, like to Karis, like pretend you're talking to her. And Karis followed and said, Kenton, I forgive you for hurting my heart. I release you from my anger, my judgment, and my expectation. And I set you free. And then my wife goes, is there anyone else you need to forgive? Oh, 20 minutes later. I'm not joking. 20 minutes later, kids from the preschool, our other sister, 20 minutes later. she And, and it's kind of funny at the end. My wife's kind of getting like a little tired of like, I release you from my anger and my judgment. But actually, those are really important. I'll be real with you. I release you from my anger, my judgment, my expectation. I no longer hold this to your account. I set you free and I bless you in Jesus' name. Because it goes to get it all like the four or five different ways we get offended. And so she's trying to speed her along. And Karis is like, no, Mom, I have to do it the same way. <laughs> so, so it's about forgiveness and helping people walk in that. Right? That, to me, that's what I've seen as the biggest breakthroughs for people come with forgiveness. Right? It cuts to the core. It's a spiritual act as well as a, a physical, relational act. Yeah? So you talk about forgiveness. If you're struggling to forgive somebody uh, for acts of they took based on an addiction, and they haven't really acknowledged it, but it's clearly the root of that action, does that does that forgiveness translate any kind of enabling, or do you need to acknowledge the action in order for forgiveness to happen? Yeah, awesome question. Uh, Could everyone hear that? You spoke pretty loud. So, um, amazing question. So there's two principles. One is called forgiveness, and the other is called reconciliation. 
right? And, and forgiveness is something that we're commanded to do. It's not optional for us if we're believers. It's not optional, right? And so when we forgive, we're saying uh, in a quiet room by ourselves to an empty chair, Bob, I forgive you for how your addictive behavior has hurt me. I release you from my anger, my judgment, my expectation. My expectation, right? I set you free and I bless you in Jesus' name, right? Now, that doesn't mean that everything that Bob did to hurt you, you just forget. It's not forgive and forget, it's, it's, it's forgive and be free. Right? You guys have heard it said that right resentment is, is drinking poison, pretending to hurt somebody else. Right? Unforgiveness is resentment. So, then we get to create boundaries. Right? Just like, let's just start it, just like God did. Hey guys, I, I need you out of the garden now. I don't want to live with you like this for the rest of my eternity. That's really what he said. Right? He's like, I don't want to see you suffer for eternity. So I'm kicking you out lest you eat of the tree of life and live like this forever. And he created a boundary. Right? And if you guys want to understand this principle, there's an amazing book called Boundaries. Uh, boundaries with your children, boundaries with teens, boundaries in marriage, boundaries, 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 boundaries with your goldfish. Now, they've done well in the boundary series. But it's because it's such a great principle. And then you get to tell that person, hey, I love you, but I'm unwilling to tolerate your punching me in the face behavior. Right? And this works with abuse situations. This works with addiction. It's about saying, you don't get the right to be in here in this world with me if you're continuing to act that way. Right? So it doesn't mean you have to reconcile. Right? <clears throat> that happens when they have demonstrated significant behavior change. Significant. Oh, recovery is a long-standing pattern of behavior that is the opposite of addiction. Right? And so the addict isn't better in three days or six months, right? It's, I, tell, I tell people I work with, it's a three to five year process because we need to restore your relationship capacity. We need to restore your brain. There's a lot of work we're going to do, right? But as, those, as they show and demonstrate more consistent behavior and trustworthiness, then you can let them then back into areas of your life. So does that make sense? Yeah, great question.
Yeah, I, I think we have some more powerful substances than we've had prior. Right? I think that we have um, more opportunity for dissatisfaction in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I would tell you, I, I don't think the human condition has changed a whole lot. I just think there's more than 31 flavors now. Um, you know, I, I, if I look historically and, and whatnot, and even we look scripturally, um, the idolatry was huge. What is idolatry? Idolatry is choosing to take care of your emotional, personal, physical, financial needs uh, yourself. I'll worship Dagon. I'll do this. And 90% of idolatry had a sexual context to it. Right? So you look again, study our history. I don't think it's changed a whole lot. I just think we have different means of accessing the behavior. Um, it's still the human condition um, that we're addressing, in my opinion. So, um, I, I, and I want to hear, guys, I, I want to be really clear with you guys that um, there, there's addiction. There's, there's probably three levels of addiction as well. And I really want to hit this is that, you know, there's, there's a moderate level of addiction where. You know, honestly, you know you're eating more than you should on a consistent basis. You've put on 10 pounds last year, 10 pounds this year, 10 pounds the year before that, right? And, and you're going, oh, that's just probably not the best thing for me. But it's really hard to stop. Do you guys understand that sugar, I think, I'm not a biochemist, but I, some guy told me this so we could verify it later. But he's like, you understand that sugar is like one, mo- one molecule away from cocaine? It's really, that's why, have you seen kids after Halloween? It's amazing. They're like, ah, oh, their pupils are all dilated. It's unbelievable, right? So sugar is super powerful, right? So we can, we can get addicted to that stuff, but it but doesn't mean that we, we need to go an inpatient treatment center. Probably not, right? So there's, there's kind of level one of addiction, which is you got some bad choices that are going on consistently, and uh, you need to create some structure in your life. There's a great book that I, I love for that type of stuff. It's called Change Anything. Most people fail to change because they don't change enough. They just change one thing. Change anything is very well researched on how to help you change enough things in your life so that you can actually change that target behavior. Right? So that's kind of level one. Level two is, is what I would call where you're getting the multiples. Right, if it's not the food, it's it's the porn. If it's not the porn, it's the the, the IPA. Right, if it's not the IPA, alcohol. Right, you know what I'm saying? It's it's the this. Right, that's level two. And level two, um, you're you're gonna need a ton of structure. Right, and you're gonna need to be aware of all of them at the same time, and probably have some consistent meetings that you're going to and things like that. Why do we do meetings anyway? What's with this meeting thing with recovery? Um, because in order to overcome a relationship problem, you need to learn how to do relationships. So one part of a say a twelve step group or a four two three group or a CR group or whatever group, one part of it has to do with the substance or behavior. The rest of it is learning how to not just hide in a closet emotionally and relationally. That's why you go. And it's been the joke is the 13th step is not figuring it out. So just go. Right? Just go. Okay? Level three addiction is, is where you, you're getting into significant behaviors, and I'll just tell you this, is and a, probably a significant trauma route. I don't know where you went. Somebody asked me about trust. Um, we go through trauma. I'm an addiction counselor. I went to school for that forever. Uh, and I found out early on I couldn't figure out how to treat people with addiction until I figured out how to treat trauma. That's why I went through some training from the International Trauma and Addiction Institute, ITAP, right? Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals, right? We have to do both, 
right? Because trauma impacts the brain in a significant way. That's why we have inpatient treatment centers um, like the Meadows in, in Wickenburg, Arizona, where you go in for 45 days, you deal with trauma and you deal with addiction at the same time because you have to heal the capacity for relationships, right? So there's, there's a, a degrees of addictive behavior, and I don't want to miss that, right? Does that, does that make sense? Anybody have any questions about that? Or I'm just really wanting to hit that. I want to show you guys a powerful video. Can we transition? I, got, I, I kind of want to take this from a different angle. What do you do if addiction is in your life? How's that? Ready? Uh, okay. Um, all right. We'll see how I can toggle between stuff. I told you I couldn't multitask, so we'll see how this goes. There's going to be just a little bit of language in this video, just if you guys are okay with that. Um, I'm not really asking permission. I'm just going to ask forgiveness afterwards. Okay. So you can see a psycho dad shreds video games. Okay. You guys ready?
So, so why did I show you that? Um, First of all, 30 minutes of lawn mowing doesn't fix a lot of maybe negligent parenting. Um, addiction addiction impacts families in different ways, right? Uh, was that kid addicted to video games? I don't know. Did it look like his gouts were getting ripped out? Yeah, I mean, if somebody takes the thing that you hug away, how are you going to feel? Right, a little bit distraught. What you saw there in that kid was was just trauma, right? That is a that is a reaction to your world being destroyed before your eyes, right? What's dad dealing with? Think dad felt real good about that? Hopefully not very long, right? I don't know his character. Um, but I, people do things when they're hurt and they're afraid that don't make sense. Right? And one of the biggest challenges we have as parents is to feel like we're doing our best to raise our kids, ultimately knowing that our kids are going to start making some decisions for themselves that we don't have any control over. Right? And uh, you have a dad there who's looking at his kid who's sitting in there in his, in his room playing games hour after hour after hour after hour. And he's been a high school graduate for three months. Right? So get a life, get a job, dad. Right? There's something called betrayal that happens when somebody in our life fails to meet our expectations. Right? That's betrayal. When somebody in your life fails to meet your expectations. Right? We have it at the marital level when somebody violates a marriage covenant. Right? That's where expectations are pretty clear. They're outlined even on paper. It's a very formal process. Um, but when we have kids, it's, it's not that formal. But I believe we're in a, in a covenant-type relationship with our children, right? Just like God is in a covenant-type relationship with us. Which means that I'm going to continue to love you uh, with no strings. I'm going to continue to be loved for you with no strings because it's the right thing to do. It's my role. Um, however, uh, we're not God, and, and he handled Adam and Eve's video game problem better than maybe that dad did, right? Um, their choice um, to, to pacify the itch, right? Because that's what Eve did. She looked at the fruit, saw that it was pleasing, looked at herself, said, I wonder if I could be better, right? I wonder if something's wrong with me. So she found a way to take care of it. And when we experience people doing that in our lives, it's incredibly upsetting to us. Again, whether it's a spouse or whether it's a child. So... I showed you that video to hopefully help you see the pain. What's the same between son and dad? Pain. Unmet expectations. Dad is angry, agreed? Anger is always, always, always the outward expression of inner pain or fear. angry people in Portland last couple nights, right? They're afraid. So, they do stuff to not feel afraid. 
So I don't judge him. I just literally just started to speak life over him. And I want you guys to just catch this, this process here of when we have failed expectations in our life, we experience pain. And then when somebody is in addiction and, and not meeting their own expectations of their own life, they experience pain and shame. Right? And that's why, have you guys ever heard it said, hurting people hurt people? Right? And that's where a lot of the relational fractures just grow and grow and grow. You talked about forgiving. Why is addiction so hard on families? Because people get hurt. And I had a great pastor friend of mine say, it's, a, it's amazing, he said this, he said, it's amazing what addiction can't hurt or can't destroy, a hard heart can. You guys catch that? It's amazing that what addiction can't destroy, a hard heart can. And so it's the, the, the yin and yang, if you will, of relationships. I'm really thankful for the word because I think we get two really incredible examples of, of how to handle betrayal. I already told you one. When, when God experienced betrayal in his life, he said, where are you? Where are you? Not because he didn't know, but because he was calling out what was in them. Where are you? You were created for a relationship with me. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? I said you're very good. Where are you? Hello. Come out. Come out. Where are you? Right? And then did God judge? No. He created the covering for them, which is a type of Christ. Agreed? Right? And then he created a new type of relationship with them. And it was all about creating a relationship with them. When we as, as obviously not being God experience that type of betrayal, I think we have a different picture we can look at. When I look in the Word, I see another dude who experienced betrayal um, very significantly. Right? And it was Christ. Right? Not, not only did Christ get betrayed by his closest besties, right? He got betrayed by his own people. He got betrayed by his own family. He got betrayed by the world. He got betrayed in, in that instance where he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he was left unto his own. Well, Christ wasn't a dummy. He knew this was coming. Right? And so he's in the garden. He's stressed. Anybody feel stressed out when people in your life don't meet your expectations? Right? Or blatantly hurt you? So he's stressed. Stressed to the point of, of, of sweating drops of blood, crying out. And I don't th- it's kind of interesting. I was looking at some of the pictures, right, on the internet for. I'll go. Come on. Here we go. Haha. Yeah. I was looking at some of the pictures on the internet of, of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And some of them I was like. He looked like he was singing a worship song. I'm like, I don't think that was it. I don't think that was it. I think it was a little bit like this. Just gut-wrenched. And what did he say? So I think what happened there is that Jesus saw betrayal. Jesus saw beating. Jesus saw the cross. Jesus saw separation. Jesus saw it all. And he said, God, I don't want this. I am not liking this. 
It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. I do not want this. Please, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But then he made a statement, which I wish we had a different translations, right? English doesn't always do the best job. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And it seems like it's the same word. I mean, it is, but I don't think it means the same thing. Our will is our heart. Our will is our emotions. Our will is our anger. Our will is our fear. Our will is our own best thinking. So Jesus is saying, hey, God, not my own best thinking. Not, don't let my fear rule the day, because fear is an amazing motivator, but a terrible compass. It doesn't tell us where to go. It just tells us to move. And he's saying, I give you my anger. I give you my fear. I give you my pain. I give you my, my hurt. I give you everything that I'm going to experience in this betrayal. I release it to you, and I trust you with your plan. And then, right, he's, he's going through this process, and he has this superpower called grace. Right? Grace being the power to do what you need to do in the moment you need to do it. Right? And he, and he goes through untold suffering, betrayal, and, and, and not a negative word was, was spoken. Right? And then he says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And I would just tell you that I think the power to, to dealing with betrayal is to find a, a way to forgiveness. Does that mean that, that you don't get boundaries? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't miss that part. You get to say, hey, your, your behavior has become intolerable to me, and if you're going to continue to be in a relationship with me, son, daughter, some things is going to change. Husband, wife, some things is going to change. But I will find a way to forgive you. And I will find a way to be with you. Right? In relationship. Again, the relationship may change. But that's because it's, it's God's will that we forgive. How many times? 70 times 7? Yeah. And some. Right? Because it's, it's His will for us. Not because He just thinks it's great that we do it. But because when we forgive others, we set ourselves free. We set ourselves free. And we change spiritual realities. I want to play a video for you. It's about eight minutes. It's about eight minutes long, so just bear with me. But I think it hits both sides of the coin of overcoming addiction and overcoming betrayal.
So I want to wrap up and create an opportunity for questions, but I really want to try to help you guys think outside the box tonight. There's a lot of books on addiction, right? But I think it's important to understand the context. We were created for relationship. We all in some form experience some degree of separation. We do our best, which is woefully inadequate, of managing that separation outside of relationship. And sometimes it takes us down a path that gets consistently, negatively, more maladaptive. The opportunity is to return to relationship. And it's our role to, I believe, model that. And it's our role to, I believe, experience that. And to lead others into that. And methods are many, principles are few. Methods may change, principles never do. And I think those are the principles of helping people overcome not only the experience of addiction, which is they feel betrayed by life, and those that are in relationship with them, which they feel betrayed by that person. And I think there's an incredible model laid out for us of the principles that we need to engage in in order to go through this stuff. So I appreciate you guys listening, and I just want to answer any questions you guys might have. Yeah. First of all, thank you. Um, Welcome. You know, the, the key point that you just summarized, I think, is something that you know, we talk about a lot in, uh, in our faith, and it's really the sort of the, the thread that goes through everything in life. It's about relationships. And as I hear you talking, I'm thinking we can talk about the, the nature of addiction, we can talk about the levels of addiction, we can talk about the severity and the impact of a family and the person and socially, psychologically, spiritually, all that, but really the only thing to talk about is restoring the relationships, you know, because that's where the healing comes in. And I think you hit on the points, too, that it can be very frustrating not only for the addict, but for the people who love the addict, like the father who ran over the, the games. I mean, it was a point where he didn't know how to relate in a healthy way, so... He just reacted in a way that was very destructive in a sense. Um, you know, I think that as, as I sit here with, with all, of, all of us, all of these people here, you know, I'm thinking a couple of things. One is that there are people in our families, uh, whether they are our kids or relatives or other family members, who are actively addicted to something, mm-hmm. whether it's pornography or alcohol or drugs or gaming or whatever. So I think that it's... I think on, on one hand, you know, it's what resources are available immediately in terms of help. It's really important. And then the second part of it, I think, has to do with, you know, um, Mary Hartzell and Daniel Siegel co-parented a book called Parenting from the Inside Out. This book called Parenting from the Inside Out. And it seems to me that so much of the work has to be done within ourselves in terms of how we can become better at relating to our children and the people that are in our lives. Yeah. You know, that's the cure, that's, that's the focus, which it is, because mm-hmm. you can't argue with that from a mm-hmm. standpoint, for sure. Right. But then there, that means there's work that has to be done here, too. And I right. think that the letting go part is something that we have to do, mm-hmm. let God help us. Mm-hmm. There's also practical things in that too. Yeah. So, I'll address that. I, I get phone calls a lot from parents and go, you know, you know, I'll just be real with you. At this day and age, it's usually they found their son or daughter with pornography. And I say daughter, too, because it's, it's about a third now um, in terms of using pornography. Um, but things like that. You know, I think my son or daughter is addicted to video games or 
whatnot. And I and I answer the que- I answer the question by first of all just saying it's okay. <laughs> it will be okay. Um, I also say, um, you know, the the thing about addiction is that it's characterized by a long-standing pattern of behavior and repeated efforts to stop. If you just found out, they might not have a long-standing pattern of behavior, nor experience repeated efforts to stop. I say that because a lot of times with early intervention, there's a lot of hope. So I have seven kids. And I also struggled big time and threw out my own life with pornography. I got exposed to pornography when I was uh, nine, and um, it, it found a root in my life, and it was something I struggled with big time until I was about 21, 22 years of age. And uh, managed, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of resources and tools available to me, but um, was able to get through it. And um, one of the biggest moments in that journey for myself was when I was, I've been dating my wife now for going on, she wasn't my wife yet, but going on about three years and and um, she called me and she could tell that I was kind of off and she goes what's going on and I go well I've never been a liar so I just said well I just got done looking up some pornography and I kind of feel really pretty crappy about myself and her response was um, how can I help and I said I just need you to pray for me and listen and I would honestly tell you that that was probably the wisest thing I could have said and the wisest thing she could have said because she said, okay, I can do that. And she proceeded to do nothing other, which was everything and. You catch that? It was nothing other, but it was everything and. She stayed in a relationship with me. And I was able to get the behaviors out of my life. I deleted my access. A lot of different, different story. But I tell that because I tell you this, is that I have seven children, four of them are boys. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I had a colleague say to me one time, he goes, he goes, it's, it's kind of funny when you have a boy, you're, you're only worried, worried about one penis. When you have a girl, you're worried about them all. Um, it's kind of funny. But um, I've, I've been very, very intentional about learning how to change my family legacy. My grandmother was an alcoholic. Um, I think my dad struggled with some stuff. Um, and I wanted to change my family legacy. And, and so I, s- I asked a lot of people, hey, what do I do? How, how do I handle this? And, and the Lord led me to the book of Deuteronomy, and I studied that uh, extensively for probably about six months to a year. Uh, and everywhere I read in Deuteronomy, I said, tell your kids about Egypt and what I did for you. Tell your kids about Egypt and what I did for you. Uh, Egypt is a type of slavery and a type of being in the world. Right? It's that picture. And what did God do? Well, he supernaturally brought them out. Uh, and then he brought them into uh, the promised land, which represents a land of relationship and abundance. Uh, and so I proceeded to tell my kids my story. Age appropriately, consistently, uh, and and varying layers of, of exposing myself to them um, in ways they could understand. And I told them what I did. Um, I told them about my struggle with pornography. And I told them how it made me, made me feel. And how I had a lot of anxiety in my life. And, and uh, I hid everything from my mom and dad, which resulted in me not being able to be honest with them and how sucky that was. And I told all my children these things. And so about two years ago... Um, I was just kind of chatting with my kids, and, and I just was kind of just sharing the gospel, but in a different way. You know, just going, hey, God's, God loves you. His love never changes. And I said, and mine doesn't either. And the cool thing is, is that, uh, you know, when you open yourself up to him, he takes the bad stuff that's in your brain, and he cleans it out. 
And they're like, okay, thanks, Dad. And then about an hour later, I got a text message from my son, <laughs> who was one room away. Uh, and he said, can you talk? And I said, sure. And he said, you better come now before I change my mind. And so I walked, you know, 24 feet. <laughs> it's important to text these days. To sit down in, in my son's room, and he, and he just, with the most anguish I've ever seen him in his entire life, said, Dad, I've been looking at pornography for about six months. And the filtering system you put in the house doesn't work. And I know how to get around it. And I feel horrible. And I just said, I'm so sorry that you're in that position, and that sucks, doesn't it? And we cried together. And started a process of healing our relationship through that and taking measures to fix the technology gaps, because I'm not going to leave a stack of Playboys on my kitchen table, and I'm sure as heck not going to have unfiltered internet access in my home. Right? But he came to me. And I called my friends, and I was bummed, and I was talking to one of my buddies as a mentor of mine. He said, Ryan, stop it. Stop beating yourself up. I'm like, dude, uh, I thought I'd do everything. And he goes, stop it. He goes, do you have any idea how amazing it is that your kid talked to you about that? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, and I hit it for like my whole life. (laughs) And so I'm trying to get to your question, which is, um, how do we help our kids? I think our kids need to know our story. I think we hide it, and we try to pretend it's okay, like Judas Smith said in that. Which we play church games, we play games, we pretend everything's okay, and that we've never had a bad day. Our kids need to know we've had bad days. Our kids need to know how we've struggled, because if they never know that we've struggled, they'll never come to us. They look at us as untouchable. But they need to know how we've messed up. And I don't ever believe, people go, well, I don't want to tell my kids how I messed up, but I'll give them permission. Like, it, like it's going to give them permission to go mess up if you tell them about how hungover you were, how you puked in your own car, right? Like, like they're going to think that's cool. They're going to go, that sounds horrible. And you go, it was horrible. Don't say it was the good old days. Say it was horrible. Because it was. And talk about the shame and everything. And then when they screw up, which they will. I think you increase the chance that they come to you. And in coming to you, you have an opportunity for restoration of relationship. And aside from that, there's a lot of great resources available to you in our community. There's, um, you know, obviously great counselors. Sometimes a counselor can come in and and help your kid unlock the questions they they need to be asking themselves or asking their parents. It's kind of funny. When I work with teens in that situation, I say, bring them in. We'll talk to them. Um, I go, I go. Hey, you know what? I'm giving you permission to do. I want you to ask your parents questions and make them squirm, because I want to get the relationship cooking, right? And usually, that child, they just need to get their story out, and the shame goes away. And if we can help them establish some good relationships again, and get the shame out of the parental relationship, and plug them into some good relationships. And then sometimes they need to help dealing with um, pain in their lives. They've experienced trauma, uh, bullying, right? Gosh, social media is brutal. You, can, you could have a bad hair day and, and get lambasted horribly for stuff like that. It's, it's, it's tough to be a teen these days in those sense. Um, but I think we just need to be aware. I think we need to be careful not to overlook trauma. Um, stuff impacts people, right? And, and have you guys seen Inside Out, that movie? That's a great movie. That was a great movie. The only thing I wish they put in it was God. That would have been amazing if they put that in that movie. But it's a great movie. It, 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 how parents, when we're stressed, we miss, their, we miss our kids' stress. 
pray. I lost my mom three years ago. That was a bummer. Right? Seven years of age. We're just still now mourning. She passed October 15th. So what we did October 15th was we have this tree little painted mural in our house, like on the kitchen wall. And, and we got out the stencils that we used to put little birds and stuff on it. My wife did an amazing job. That was not me, by the way. Um, right? And, and I said, hey, guys, why don't we cut out some stencils of some birds and some leaves and some different things. And, and why don't you guys write on it what you most loved about Grammy? Right? So they wrote on it. And then we talked about it. And then we had a recording of her slideshow from her service. All these pictures of her life growing up. And we watched it. And and, um, I sobbed. And we just had opportunities to talk. And it was amazing. Our kids were like, yeah, that was horrible, actually. You told us she died, and then you sent us to bed. I was like, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm sorry. And we hugged and cried, and it's a process. It's not perfection. So I, I just think we need to stay tuned, stay tuned in, and, and ask them about their day, and really wonder what the answer is going to be. So, yeah. Uh, it might be okay. Since you have a lot of kids, yeah. you know, I do too. So. Um, if you have one person in the house, which we have, one person who is very, a sort of more addictive personality, or prone to addiction personality than others, and is like so into computers and games, and well, we don't have gaming systems, but like even computer games, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. he goes, I'm gonna go study, and then yeah. we homeschool. So there's some videos and things he has to watch. And then I go and look over the shoulder. It's like, oh, Minecraft. Oh, what? Where did that come from? And he's not even playing. He's watching somebody else play. You know, I'm like, seriously? <laughs> um, how would you, like, especially in this situation, it would be like, nobody can watch TV. Nobody can, because I'm trying to eliminate it. And then all my other kids are like, why are you punishing us? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you differentiate that, the, not the punishment necessarily, but helping that person deal with, it, with the addiction with not punishing? Punishing or you know, yeah. side punishing the, the other people in the house. I don't know. That's a that's a hard question. Yeah, I, I think I think sometimes we sacrifice um, what all might enjoy in order to make it safe for one. Kind of the don't cause a brother to stumble. You know, maybe maybe if you have five kids, four of them will be fine with unfiltered internet. But I think it's dumb to leave it open. Right, just in case the other one might struggle with that, you know. So I think it's a matter of looking at a principle of how do we create a, a safe and responsible home environment. But I would wonder, um, you know, it's really interesting is that um, it, there's a really high correlation between um, ADD, right, and addiction, right. Well, some say that's because uh, people with ADD are more impulsive. Um, but I, I also know there's a really high correlation between um, experiencing some sort of like anxiety and not knowing how to handle it. Kids that are 10 don't go, I'm really stressed out today, Mom. They just really fidget, <laughs> right? So I think it's a matter of, of I'll get to your point or your question. Um, you can't control everything. I really don't think you can control everything. Um, but I try to teach, teach kids how to, how to self-soothe. Right. So go back to the hug. Right. We we, I you know I an, an infant. How often does an infant want a hug? 
Like all the time, I remember my wife going, I'm not a human pacifier. Right? right? They just want to hug, man. Like, babies want to be held. Right? Well, at some point, we, we internalize the process of the hug. Right? And we learn how to self-soothe. It's been said that the greatest gift you can give yourself is the ability to self-soothe. Right? So I think, I ask my clients a lot of times, I go, hmm, kind of curious, what do you do to relax? A lot of people look at me like a cow looking at a new gate. It's like, I don't know. And I teach them how to do breathing exercises. Right? If we breathe right in through our stomach, out through our stomach with our diaphragm versus our chest, right? Look up relaxation breathing. Um, look up, there's also um, our, di- our um, pelvic floor. You guys know any veterans? It's Veterans Day, right? You know, my brother in law, he says, I don't know anybody in my unit that, who, who doesn't pucker up a little bit when they drive over a culvert. You guys know that pucker factor, right? Well, what is it? It's your pelvic floor. These muscles. These muscles get tight when we get afraid because it's the keep you alive system in your body, right? If your hips are tight, you can move. You're ready. So that's why that puckers up when we get scared so that we can move, right? Well, that's, that becomes tight a lot of times for people. And the cool thing about that is that that muscle group, when it gets tight, sends a signal right to the base of your brain, your ventral vagal nerve, and says, be afraid, Right? So you can actually reverse the system. Many women ever do Kegel exercises, right? It's, it's right. Well, guys, you have a, that same muscle group too, right? And if a muscle can be tightened, it can be relaxed. And so learning how to relax that muscle group, right, sends a signal back to your brain the opposite direction that says, chill out. So, I mean, so all I have to say is that we need to keep, teach our children how to chill out. Right? We need to teach them how to take care of themselves. And, and frankly, stuff like studying all day, sitting on a computer, man, our brains are designed for novelty. We love it. So we're always like, squirrel, right? You know what I'm saying? We're always like, God made us that way to keep us alive and to help us like, be able to forage and you know, find a mate, frankly, right? So it's a matter of, of, of putting time constraints on some of those things and boundaries around it. But it's a more in-depth question, but I'm just trying to hit some of the principles around... You actually get a lot. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Like, how much mm-hmm. can we do? 
Because some of that yeah. is peer to peer, and that's sure. where so much anxiety comes in because yeah. they're jerks to each other. Yeah. And they become yeah. so pain. Yeah. So I, I think, so I ask every adult client, um, what, what did you learn about relationships in the home? Right, monkey see, monkey do. Right, so intimacy, the, the, the antidote to addiction is intimacy. Right, attachment, closeness. Right, to be able to be safe in the presence of another person, that's intimacy. Right, so um, for, first thing, right, and this is you know, John Wooden, one of my heroes, right, so the greatest, greatest gift you can give your children is to love their mother. Right, because it models that relationship. And again, I know we're in an imperfect world and we have challenges with some of these things, but I'm just trying to say that, that the first thing kids learn is what's modeled for them. Um, and then it's a matter, I honestly believe your kids need you more when they're this age than they do when they're little. It's just different. My wife's like, your job is so easy compared to mine. I have seven of them all day long and it's constant. I processed for an hour today with just one kid. right? And it's all emotional stuff. And it's like, Right? Okay? Because it taps into our own stuff. So I'll just give you a resource that I think is great. Gabor Mate, holding on to your kids is awesome because it's about attachment. Um, How We Love uh, by um, Milan and Kay Yurkovic. But you can go to howwelove.com and they also have uh, How We Love Our Kids. Uh, and it's how we love, um, as people th- go through my process and I help them overcome addiction and get some good routines in their life and we start talking about rebuilding relationship capacity, I take them through how we love. Right? And it's, it's all based on attachment theory and it teaches you the funk that you learn about relationships, how you're using whatever you can to cope with the funk and how to get back to a really clean place, so to speak. Um, so again, those are some great resources, but I think it's a matter of, of modeling it for them. And I think the more our kids feel close to us, I think the more resilient they are. And I got a good buddy who's talking about his daughter who's, you know, 16. And um, gosh, she was reading a book. Um, Carrie, what was the book that Sean was reading? This is my awesome helper, Carrie. She's helping me out tonight so I don't leave stuff at home and forget things. But captivating, right? It's, 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 a, it's about a, a woman's self-image. Right, so this 16-year-old young girl is reading Captivating, and she has a daddy who loves her, and she knows it. And she gets like this mean text thread about how she doesn't have a butt and her boobs are small. 16. And she just starts telling her dad, she goes, that's so stupid. And she just totally shook it off like a, a water on a duck's back. Because she knew her daddy loved her, and she knew that she was precious. Right, and so it's a matter. I think we have opportunity to build resilience in our children with that stuff, right? But parents, if you got teen kids, uh, game ain't over. Stay engaged. It's, it's, it's the big stuff. And honestly, we have to press into it because they'll be really tempted to say, "Well, I know you're busy, and so I'm fine." Right. So keep asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to cut you off. One more. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and there's still a lot of neuroscience coming out about that. We used to believe that the brain was very static, and, and once it is, it is what it is. But we're learning a ton about, the honestly, the ability of the, of the brain to regenerate. 
right? And so um, when I work with people, I'm, I'm all about, first of all, supporting the brain, right? Because, I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's a physical organ. You know, we think of it as our thinking and stuff. It's a physical organ, right? So we need to support it. And um, frankly, I recommend a product, just being honest with you, to help people get through addiction and to give their brain everything it needs. It's called, I call it brain food, jokingly, but it's called EQ. And it's through a website called biogenicnutrition.com. Biogenic Nutrition. I worked with a naturopath and... Um, I, I would say I loosely consulted with him. He just was kind of like, what does it need? And I'm like, it needs this. And, um, and then he, did, he formulated it. And um, it's a phenomenal product um, that helps rebuild your brain. It's all amino acids, right? They give your brain the natural stuff it needs to, to support it. It's called EQBiogenicNutrition.com. Um, and it's about giving your brain every possibility that you need to, to rebuild. But there's another book called The Healing Power of Relationships that talks about literally the changes that can happen in your brain physically from being engaged in a relationship. Healing power of relationships, right? So, um, but to answer your question, there, there is hope. And you know what's even cooler than all that science stuff I just talked about? God created us with a blueprint. And if we're supposed to live on earth as it is in heaven, I think we need to call down a blueprint from heaven. Say, hey, can you download that? We need to have a restoration process occur. And and if we can experience miraculous healing physically in people's bodies and see that, I think we can experience miraculous healing of people's brains. So, great question, though. There's a lot of hope to answer that. A lot of hope. I'll hang out for a little bit if you guys want me to. So. Thank you, uh, Dr. Hosley, for your uh, your presentation tonight. There's a lot to uh, a lot to take in, obviously, you know. But I think what you said at the beginning and how you wrapped up at the end—that really it has to do primarily with relationships. Even all the books that you're talking about, I mean, all these things have to do with the same thing. It's just it's it's um, it's sad in the way that as human beings created as relational beings in the image of a relational God that this is one of the hardest and toughest things we do. And it doesn't take much to derail us in terms of our own experiences. They kind of, you know, when you, those, those big jet planes and you turn the dial and it changes the direction just a degree, but a thousand miles, you're way off course in the sense of relationship and how to relate in a healthy, functional way. So there, there's a lot of self-introspection, I think, you know, and that, that needs to go into that too. So we're going to, uh, with his permission, we'll go ahead and post the uh, audio of this um, hopefully in a few days. So if you want to go back and listen to some of it. Um, again, thank you all for coming. Uh, you have great questions. I can tell that this is something that's uh, uh, passionate for you in terms of your own hearts and your lives as well. And uh, we're grateful for your area of expertise in bringing this to us and sharing this information. So um, uh, Dr. Housley said he will be uh, around for a little bit just to answer some more questions. Um, do you have that? I wanted to give you also just a gift. Um, one of them, they're actually, this is our bookstore, so, and this, uh, this is one of our very faithful, uh, 
servants, if you will, in the bookstore. Both uh, Agapi and Padaskavi run a, a very beautiful bookstore here. But one of them was that parenting book that just came out. And the other one is, um, is called When Hearts Become Flame. And he's by a, a dear friend and colleague of mine. He's uh, Dr. Stephen Muse, who lives uh, in Columbus, Georgia. And uh, he, he's a traumatologist. He works a lot with uh, veterans and active military at Fort Benning. Um, and he wrote a very, very beautiful book that is uh, really the epitome of orthodox understanding of integration of psychology and spirit, orthodox spirituality. So I hope it'll be um, of, of, uh, of value to you and to find something in there. So not that you're probably not an avid reader and probably have many books already there that you're trying to get through. So, but enjoy those as well. And uh, and thank you to your helper who came as well. It's nice to have you with us. Please stand and we'll close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Christ our God, we thank you for this time together, for the presentation, for all the information that we gathered. We ask that you help us to synthesize all this information, that it will touch our hearts and minds and souls in such a way to transform the way we relate to the people in our lives. For we know that all healing comes from you ultimately and that all of this healing comes through grace and the love that you provide in order to bring such healing to the hearts and souls of others around us. Give us the grace, the strength, the courage, and the wisdom to fulfill this beautiful ministry of loving others and bringing people closer to you for your holy, always, now, and forever. Amen. Have a good evening. Thank you for coming. Uh, and the next talk will be in three weeks, which will be Thursday, December 1st, and it'll be at 6.30. So December 1st, Thursday at 6.30 p.m.